So unless I can really think of a lot of words here, we're probably going to have an early early service here. I thought that would probably be the best because if I start on the second service, we're going to end up in the middle of that. And so it's just kind of a vicious cycle that you'll never get out of. So uh, we're not going to uh, go that way. And so, uh, of course, so, so far we have, we have, uh, John has been warning us, but he's also begin, been giving us a lot of comfort uh, from him. Excuse me. Guy Guy hides from me. But he also gives us a lot of comfort. In fact, as I'm going to show later, that, that it is the prime reason for this letter is to give assurance and comfort to God's, to God's people. And so the destination of the world, and John's warning is really reaching its apex in verse 17. The Apostle Paul had begun by telling us that the love for this world, uh, do not love this world or the things in this world, were then given the eternal consequence for doing so. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And next we're told that love for this fallen world stems from the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And now John lays two choices before us in verse 17. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. The choices that are given to us are crystal clear by John. There's no, there's no ambiguity. There's no middle ground. John has set before us two roads that are clearly marked out. And it's an appeal, really, to our reason and logic. John is sitting down with us and says, Look, is it reasonable that you hold on and love a world that's perishing? How reasonable is that? It sounds like God speaking Isaiah when he says, Come and let us reason together. But I put these two choices this way. I mean, those, those, those two roads that John just, just told us about they have far-reaching ramifications in themselves. The first choice, I've listed five things concerning that choice. In choice number two, I've listed five things concerning that choice. Here is choice number one. I choose to put my hope in a world that is passing away. I choose to die in my sins. I choose to receive the wages of my sin for all eternity. I choose to live where pain never ceases day and night. And I choose to live in a place where I'm forever reminded of the horrible choice that I made. That's that's choice number one. I like choice number two quite a bit better. I choose to turn my back on a world that is perishing to live in a world that will never perish. I choose to live in a world where pain and suffering are replaced with joy and gladness. I choose to trust in Christ for the forgiveness of all my sins. I choose to exchange this body for one that is immortal. And I choose to have joy and peace with my Lord and Savior for all eternity. I think that's what we call a, a no-brainer, 
we definitely want to choose number two. Well, as I said before, Joshua told Israel, choose this day whom you will serve. Moses, we know, certainly had a good choice or made a good choice. Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for that reward. Moses made that choice long before Jesus said, store your treasures in heaven. And even longer before Martin Luther sang those words, let goods and kindred go this mortal life also. Great words. Well, some of you know of, of the missionary uh, Jim Elliott. He was actually born right here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, while he was, he was trying to bring Christ to the Aqua Indians there in Ecuador, they martyred him. They martyred him. But in the previous year, he penned these uh, absolutely unforgettable lines. He said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I'm going to say that one more time because it's worth repeating. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That, that's an unassailable truth. And that really captures what John is, is telling us. Well, we all struggle with sin. At one time or another, we've all been drawn in by the enticements and the allurements of this world. We still have that indwelling sin, that's, that's, that law of sin that's always pulling us that direction, and sometimes we say yes to it. Well, again, as I, as I quoted the Apostle John in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But God will not allow his child to continue down that path. He will not do that. The chastening of God can be severe. How severe? How severe is that chastening? Severe enough to keep you and I from continuing to love this evil world. That's how severe that that chastening can be. Severe enough to make us realize that loving this world is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. And a life that continues to love this fallen world will hear those horrific words from Christ, I never knew you. This is, a, this is a scary passage, isn't it? But for the believer, the apostle is preaching a message on commitment. Commitment. It's a command to cease flirting from this fallen world. It's a call to single-mindedness and an undivided loyalty to God. It's a call to reassess our priorities. John reasons with us really uh, very much the same as our Lord reasons with us. Jesus said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is reasoning with us. He's, he's show, Look, I'm going to appeal to your reason and to your logic. How ridiculous is to hold on to this 
perishing world and to hold on to your sins. And he wants us to see the deception of thinking we can have one foot in this world and we can have the other in heaven. If you've got one foot in this world, you've got both feet in this world. You can't have one in heaven at the same time. One commentator puts it this way, you cannot have God as your spouse and still have the world as your mistress. Well put. I thought that was well put. But that wholehearted devotion to God must be founded on this one unshakable belief that having Christ is far greater than anything that the world has to offer. We've got to start there. Christ is greater than anything that this world could possibly offer us. Do you see Christ as your pearl of great price? Is Christ that one that you would sell everything that you had in order to gain Christ? God really accepts nothing less than that. He really calls us that kind of a devotion to him. And I find this quotation by David Allen very insightful. The human heart will never relinquish its love affair with the world unless it finds something greater to love than the world. You just can't love both. Well, how do we how do we counter the enticements of this present evil age? We think, of course, about the, the means of grace, that they are powerful weapons against the world, the flesh, and the devil. In fact, if somebody's feeling lukewarm, uh, and they're just feeling like God is a long ways away. Uh, the means of grace are reading God's word, prayer, fellowship, the Lord's Supper. If somebody is neglecting these kinds of things, it should be no wonder that that person is feeling lukewarm and God is a long ways away. You know, that's often the answer. I just don't feel close to God. I just I feel so lukewarm. Well, are, are you doing these things? Well, you know, sometimes... And, no, that's probably the reason why we're so far from God. We're, we're simply not we're simply not doing those things that God has called us to do to, in order to draw closer to Him. These are essential for spiritual growth. Excuse me. But I I would add this. I would add this. The means of grace includes taking every full advantage of every opportunity that God sets before you to grow in the grace and knowledge of Him. Those opportunities come by, we have to say yes. Yes to those. This is, this is an opportunity set before me. I can grow closer to God. You know, and, and we can't pass those up. As I said before, every church needs a comforting and some need to be discomforted and Again, John teaches both of those in this book, in this letter. An unbeliever thinking themselves to be saved may pass this doctrinal test. They may. In fact, they may be a Reformed Baptist through and through and still not a believer in Christ. And they may have a common grace love for members of this church, though it never rises really to a Christ-like love. But disobedience to God's command is the test that more readily expo- exposes the unbeliever's heart. Disobedience to God. The unregenerate heart will always love the world and the things in the world. 
that will never change for the unbeliever. They will love this world in one way or the other. And for that person, John has this to say, the love of the Father is not in you. As this world is perishing in its sins, you likewise will perish in your sins. Bringing discomfort always has the goal of driving that person to Christ. The wages of sin must be preached in order that the hope that that person will someday cry out, what must I do to be saved? These three tests are not given to create doubt and fear in the hearts and minds of these believers or us. In fact, really, uh, John's goal is really quite the opposite of that. For the believer, having passed these tests, John gives these words of comfort and assurance. Remember my favorite verse? Verse John 5, 13. He says, I write these things to you. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He wants his flock to have that comfort and assurance of knowing that they're saved, knowing that they're going to be with Christ. Peter says much the same thing. Be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. It's so that you can assure your heart before, before God. We can then say with a clear conscience, yes, the marks of a true child of God are apparent in my life. I can say that with, with John, that, that I can have that comfort and assurance and to know that I have eternal life. I pass these three tests. I pass these tests. Of course, no one passes these tests with flying colors. No one does. Doctrines like the Incarnation, of course, now they must, they, they must be believed. But who has kept the two great commandments and who has perfectly obeyed God's commands in all of their thoughts, in all of their words, in all of their deeds? And so, but, the, but sometimes, sometimes we feel defeated, don't we? It's like the world, the flesh, and the devil. Sometimes it feels like they're winning. It feels like they're winning sometimes. And we feel like David when he says, For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. You ever feel like that? Ever feel like that? I have. I have. Or when Paul cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, sometimes we drag ourselves through those doors and we, we just can't seem to get past how we sinned the week before. How could I do that? How could I do it? I love you, Lord. I love you. And yet I sinned last week and, and I, I know I shouldn't have. I, I had the power not to do that. And yet I still do that. So sometimes we might come here with our, with, with our shoulders hanging low and just wonder why that ever happened. Why we got so, so defeated. In fact, there's times we may, ever, may, may even question our love for God itself. You know, I haven't been a Christian for 50 years. I've been through it. I know it. We question that times. But here's some things to consider. Here's some things to consider, particularly for the hands that are hanging down. Why did you as a child walk through those doors this morning? 
You came here because you wanted to worship the God who sent his son to save you from your sins and to make you his child. If you're a child of God, that's why you walked through those doors this morning. You came here because you wanted to hear God's word uh, taught and preached. You came here because you wanted to sing praises to God's name. You came here because you wanted to pray with God's people and to fellowship with God's people. And you came here because you wanted to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When you walked through those doors this morning, you sent this message to yourself and others. In the battle, the last battle, I may have stumbled, but I'm still in the war. And I will not be moved. In spite of my weak and trembling faith, it was that faith that brought me here today. And it is that trembling faith that lays hold of God's promise to never leave me or forsake me. But there may be some here who know that they're not saved. They know they're not saved. You know that Christ died on the cross to save sinners. You know that heaven and hell are real places. And that they are eternal. And you know all these things. And that if you died right now, you know that your sins would send you to hell. But oh, you say, I've got lots of time. I've, I've, got, I've got lots of time. I have many years left before I ever have, to, ever have to think about such things. But do you? Do you really? There are people last night that went to sleep and they never woke up. Young people, vibrant people, people had no, no ailments, no sicknesses at all. They went to sleep thinking they were going to wake up that morning, that next morning, and they never woke up. They never woke up. And so, how do you know, years from now, as you are hearing the gospel, that you are, you are listening to those words, years from now, that it will have any effect whatsoever on your dull, hardened, calloused heart. You have no idea. As we say no and no and no and no to the gospel, it does something to our heart. Over time, pretty soon, the gospel is just so many words and nothing more than that. Well, there is a good time to, to, to come to Christ. Uh, and in fact, I know what the best time is. Because the Bible tells us what that is. Isaiah says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. That's the best time. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord that he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will freely pardon uh, that's really almost the end of this message, but I, I'm going to read a passage from from Second Peter, and then I, then I am going to uh, close in, in in prayer. Second Peter gives us another frightening warning of what's coming. First, Second Peter three verses ten through thirteen. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to that promise, we are waiting for new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter, as well as John, is saying, set your eyes on what's coming. This this world is not going to be here. There's a world that's coming. Have you got your eyes? Have you got, are you focused upon that world that's coming? Because the more that we focus on that world that's coming, it's just the less we think about this world. And that's what we really need to do, put our affections on that world that is to come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we praise you and worship you in all your glory and majesty. We cannot thank you enough for sending us your Son, that we might have life in his name. And we praise you for all your great and precious promises to us. Help us, Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to to less uh, love this this fallen, sinful world, this, this world that you want us to forsake, this fallen world. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.